Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study of the Gospel of Luke. My name is John Robbins. Thank you for your presence once again tonight. I hope that you'll pull out your Bible and also a notepad so you can take notes along the way and follow. There is, of course, information on the screen as well, but it is always helpful to have your own Bible in front of you. So we pick up today with the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We're going to start with verse 22. But let me just quickly refresh our memory about what we dealt with last week, and then we'll move right along. Part of what we dealt with last week, you will recall, is Jesus coming into the presence of a man with leprosy. Remember, in that culture, in that day and time, one who had leprosy had to separate oneself from the crowd, to be apart from everybody, and to yell out unclean three times to make sure people distanced themselves. There is a man who comes into the presence of Jesus, obviously risking his life in doing so because he could have been stoned to death for coming into the presence of uh, other people. Jesus touches the man and makes him well. It's an indication on the part of Jesus how important this man was. The man who had gone without the human touch for an extended period of time is made well by Jesus by the touch. That means that he's included, that he is worthy of the intimacy of the human touch, and Jesus makes him well. Then we have one who is paralyzed, and he is lowered down into the presence of Jesus by his friends, and it is the faith of the friends that causes Jesus to pay attention to the man who is paralyzed. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight, uh, where Jesus says to this one who has been paralyzed, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, what that means is that most scholars believe that somehow his paralysis is related to his sin. We don't know what that means, but we are going to see that his sin is forgiven. He is a sinful man because he clearly uh, is one that Jesus speaks to in this situation. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And that's where we pick up. In the process of saying that, Jesus offends other people because clearly Jews believe that only God had the right to forgive sin. So in Jesus publicly stating that he is offering the forgiveness of sins, what Jesus is doing is publicly stating that he's God, which would have been blasphemy in the eyes of many people, which meant, of course, that Jesus was risking his own life by declaring himself to be just who he was, and that is the Son of God, the one who was, is, and will always be. So let's pick up with chapter 5, verse 22, the Gospel of Luke. Before we do that, let me just remind you once again to register your attendance at phumc.com connect. And to give you one word of information, we will resume in-person Bible study and small groups on Wednesday, March the 9th. So please mark that on your calendar. We'll have a Wednesday evening meal, and we can divide up into small groups, or you can be here in person for our Wednesday evening Bible study of the Gospel of Luke, or of course, obviously, you can continue to watch online, but we want you to be aware of that information. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking, that is, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to the paralyzed man. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
Notice how Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is interchangeable with the Son of God, who has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus, in two ways, publicly declares who he is. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he refers to himself as the one who has the authority to forgive. This would have incensed many in the crowd. Others would, of course, in seeing the paralyzed man made well, as it often states in the Gospel of Luke, would have been amazed or astonished. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. As it is customary in the Gospel of Luke, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So when Jesus tells the man to get up and take his mat and walk, what Jesus has done, of course, is proven his capacity to heal the man. Remember, he's paralyzed. He can't get up and take his mat and go home. But Jesus forgives him of his sin, tells him to pick up his mat, take it, walk, and go. And he does just that. Jesus proves his power in the healing of this man. But of course, for many, that is simply not going to be enough. They're more concerned about Jesus' words than about the man being made well. All right, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Now, let me just tell you that Levi is also known as Matthew. They are one and the same. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, I preached about this last week when Jesus mentions to Peter, James, and John that they will now fish for people, which was also a part of the Gospel of Luke. And they leave everything and immediately follow him. Now we see Levi. The difference is that Peter, James, and John would have been respected individuals working hard to make a living, providing for them fam their family as fishermen. Levi is considered a turncoat and a traitor. He's a tax collector. He would have been considered the kind of individual that took advantage of those uh, who were in need. He would have been the kind of person who had a lack of regard for other people, or at least that would have been the impression because of the position he held as a tax collector. Tax collector was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. And that would have been, in the eyes of many Jews, a sign of a turncoat, a traitor. And Jesus approaches this one named Levi and says, follow me. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, what I want you to see, of course, is that Jesus can call anybody, even a tax collector. That's what we call grace. Someone who has taken advantage of other people. Someone who has sinned grievously against others, and most importantly, against God, can still receive the blessing from Jesus Christ. And that's what Levi does. Jesus says, follow me. He extends grace to Levi. Levi takes advantage of that, and he follows Jesus. You can see all kinds of people that Jesus selects to follow him. Many of them are the kind of individuals that many of us would probably judge as inferior 
but Jesus knows their capacity to do good, and as a result of that, Levi becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. It says that he leaves everything to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean he just drops what he was doing. It also means he leaves behind his past. He leaves everything. He leaves being a tax collector. He leaves behind being someone who took advantage of other people. He leaves his sin behind. It's Luke's way of saying that his past remains there and Levi is moving forward by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Now notice what happens as a result of that. Jesus, remember, is a rabbi. He's a teacher. Rabbis waited for people to come to them. Their disciples would come to them, ask permission, if you will, to be a disciple of that respective Levi, uh, that respective rabbi. Levi, in this particular situation, comes into the presence of Jesus after Jesus approaches him. Jesus flips it around. He does what is considered uncouth or even inappropriate. He is a rabbi who goes to the disciples instead of the disciples coming to him. But that's the way Jesus did his ministry. Oftentimes, turn the tables upside down, literally and figuratively. He did not oftentimes meet the expectations of other people because he did it the way he wanted to do it. And in this particular instance, he calls out a man to follow him. That man leaves behind his past, leaves behind his sin, leaves behind his profession, and immediately follows Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. So you've got a raucous bunch, to say the least, a bunch of people known as tax collectors who are eating with Jesus. He is in a room full of people who would have been hated and despised, and Jesus is eating a meal with them. Now, in that culture, in that day and time, to sit down and eat a meal with another person was a sign of reconciliation. So what Jesus does in many ways is reconcile the brokenness of these people by being in their presence. He is extending grace to some pretty honorary people. It's a sign of reconciliation, a sign of redemption, to have a meal, a sacred meal together. We all know how sacred meals can be when we break bread with other people, the intimacy of eating with other people, conversing with one another over a meal. And that's what Jesus is doing. Levi invites him into his home after Jesus invites Levi to be a follower of his. Now Levi reciprocates by inviting Jesus into his home and Jesus follows to Levi's home and has a meal with tax collectors. This, of course, is not going to sit well with lots of people. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why would you have a meal with people like this? Why would you participate in the intimate act of enjoying a feast with other people, a sign of reconciliation when they are such slimy people? That question is posed to Jesus' other disciples, the ones he's collected so far. Jesus, however, is the one that answers. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I come into the presence of those who are broken, those who are unhealthy, those who are in need of a savior. I'm there for them. I haven't come to the righteous. What he really means, I think, is I haven't come to those who are 
unrighteous or self-righteous. I have come for sinners. And these tax collectors certainly would have fit into that category. And Jesus, of course, responds accordingly by offering grace and forgiveness and mercy and love, as he so often does, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 33, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but you're just go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make friend, the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is still with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Jesus is saying here, I'm still among my people. Now remember, the bride of Christ in scripture is the church. Jesus is the bridegroom. And what we have here is Jesus saying, I'm still among my people. I'm going to enjoy being with them. They're going to enjoy being in my presence. We take advantage of our time together. I will not always be here. And when I am not here, then they will respond accordingly. They will do what needs to be done to maintain their spiritual discipline. In the meantime, they're with me. So then he told him this parable, verse 36. No one tears a piece of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch on the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. It is the issue of maintaining the old ways. The new, Jesus says, is not going to match the old. Remember, Jesus is the new covenant. And the new is not going to match the old, Jesus tells us, in using as a metaphor or as an example, wineskins. There are people who are interested in maintaining the old ways, but the new and the old cannot coexist. And so what Jesus does here is remind them, as the one who is the new covenant, that the old ways can no longer maintain themselves, that there is a new way of doing things. That's why people have difficulty understanding Jesus. He does things in a new way. He goes out and he collects his disciples instead of disciples coming to him. He touches people you're not supposed to touch. He teaches on the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. He speaks to people that he's not supposed to speak to. He should condemn some people, but instead of condemning them, he has a meal with them. It is a new way of doing ministry. It is a new way of presenting God in flesh among the people, and people don't know what to do with that. We see it over and over again. All right, chapter 6. One Sabbath, as we see over and over again in Luke, Luke does not have specific days oftentimes or specific dates, but if it is a Sabbath, he makes it abundantly clear that we know it is a Sabbath day. So one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Pharisees just seem to hound Jesus and the disciples in Luke's gospel. Follow them around, finding any reason to be critical, any reason to be condemning. 
And in this particular instance, Jesus is with the disciples. They go into the grain field. They take heads of grain and they rub them together. That means, of course, that it is considered to be work now. They have rubbed the grains together and one is not to work on the Sabbath day. That is forbidden. But it is a stretch, of course, of the Sabbath laws. As we've said before, remember, there were a handful of laws about what one could and could not do on the Sabbath day. But by the time of Jesus, those Sabbath laws had been perverted to an extreme. One could not thread a needle on the Sabbath day. That was considered working. Couldn't cook on the Sabbath day. Couldn't swat a fly on the Sabbath day. Swatting a fly on the Sabbath day was considered hunting, and hunting is forbidden on the Sabbath. It was stretched to a perversion. And so Jesus here finds himself with his disciples, and they're hungry. It's the Sabbath. They want something to eat. And preparation of food is forbidden on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees draw that to their attention. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for the priests to eat. He gave some to his companions. Now, I want you to look at this because I think it's important. If you will, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I want to read a portion of this, 1 Samuel. If you go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel is after Ruth. So if you can find that, look in your index if necessary. 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I want to read beginning with verse 4. So David and his men are hungry. And it says in verse 4, But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day that it was taken. Now you can go back to the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus makes reference to an occasion many, many years earlier where David, King David, finds himself hungry and his men are hungry and they enter into the presence of the Holy One. The priest is there and they have the bread that has been consecrated to God. It is holy bread. It is only bread that can be consumed by the priest. No one else has a right or any kind of entitlement to that bread. But G David says, we're hungry. We need something to eat. What do you have? Well, all I've got is the consecrated bread, says the priest. And David says, fine, and they eat it. Jesus uses that as an example here when he and his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath day, rub it in their hands, and then partake of what they have. Now, this is what happens. Jesus tells them about what David did. And then Jesus says, in verse 5, Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's important here. Human need takes precedence. 
When I was in seminary, I had a professor who used to say all the time, people before discipline. When we were studying the book of discipline as a part of being a United Methodist pastor, learning the rules and the formality of the United Methodist Church and all the things that go along with that, it's very detailed, very thorough. But our professor used to say, let me always remind you that it's people before discipline. In other words, people and their needs take precedent over what the law says, if you will, when there has to be a choice, one or the other. In this particular situation, what Jesus is saying is, I am God. Again, I control the Sabbath. I can make a determination about what needs to be done on the Sabbath day, and I'm hungry, being fully God and fully human, and my men are hungry, and we're going to eat. Remember, he refers to himself, again, as the Son of Man. Now look at verse 6. On another Sabbath, Luke is giving us examples of Jesus, if you will, quote-unquote, breaking the Sabbath law, but for the good of humanity, placing the needs of the individuals before these perverted laws that were blown way out of proportion, which were never intended to be stretched as far as they were. So Luke gives us an example of Jesus and the disciples in the grain field eating on the Sabbath day, which technically they would say was considered preparation for a meal and not to be done. Now we have another example. On another Sabbath, verse 6, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. Now, notice Luke is very intentional about telling us which hand is shriveled. Remember in that culture, the right hand was used for work, the right hand was used for gesturing and for greeting. The left hand was used for bodily hygiene. So the right hand was the hand, that's why we say the hand of authority, sitting at the right hand of the Father. The hand of authority, the hand of power. The left hand for hygiene matters. The left hand was not to be extended and shown publicly in a situation like this, which means, of course, because this man's right hand is withered, unusable, he is forced to use his left hand, which means he is forced to show his shame. He's using the hand that is to be, to be used for hygiene matters, but he has to use it to eat with, he has to use it to greet other people so people would not have greeted him with his left hand. It is a visible example of the shame that he has to carry because his right hand is not usable. And it is the Sabbath day. This is a man who has a physical condition that limits his capacity to work because it's his right hand that is shriveled. It is a man who has to show publicly his shame because of his condition. What do you think is going to happen? Who are the kind of people that Jesus oftentimes draws himself toward in situations like this. We know the example time and time again of how Jesus is the one who shows God's love, particularly for the downtrodden, for the ostracized, for the broken, for the shameful. Let's see what happens. There was a man whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees, of course, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely just hovering over him, it appears to be, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. 
Now think about how uncomfortable this man must have felt doing that. Getting up, Jesus knows what they're thinking. This is a no-win situation because for Jesus, it appears as though if he heals on the Sabbath, he is in violation of the Sabbath law. If he refuses to heal the man, he denies his mission that he talks about to release the captives, to set them free, captive from sin, captive from physical pain, whatever it may be. So it looks as, like, it looks as though Jesus has found himself in a situation where there is no opportunity for him to come out of this without being shamed himself. And the Pharisees are ready to pounce. And then, interestingly enough, Jesus asked this man who would have been filled with shame to come and stand in front of everybody. Who wants to do that if you're already filled with shame just hanging in the back? So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now, look at what happens. This man whose right hand is shriveled is instructed to stand in front of everybody, and Jesus tells him to open up his hand, and he is able to do so. Now, notice Jesus doesn't touch him. Jesus just gives a command, and the man follows the command of Jesus, and in doing so, his hand is no longer shriveled. It is healed. It is whole. He can grasp things. He can work. He can shake hands. He is no longer going to have to live with the shame of making his left hand the quote-unquote dirty hand, the hand that he has to eat with and use. Instead, he is now like other folk. How do you think people are going to respond to that? Can you imagine how this man must have felt? to have his life back. It's not just a matter of having the capacity of being able to use his hand. It is literally granting him new life. And Jesus commands that the man do what he tells him to do, stand up in front of everybody. The man does it. Jesus then commands him to open up his hand. The man does it. And because the man is faithful in doing what Jesus tells him to do, he is made well. But of course... That's not going to work for some. But the Pharisees, verse 11, and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The joy of this man's healing is lost to anger on the part of the Pharisees and others, which is ironic. These people who are supposed to be so faithful couldn't care less about those who have a great need. Jesus is meeting the needs of people who are ignored, who don't matter, and he's saying, I want you to be in front and center in front of everybody. You're no longer going to be ignored. You're somebody. And then he proves it by healing them and making them somebody. But interestingly enough, there are those who are infuriated by that. And in this case, it's the religious establishment. All right, let's move on. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray. Oftentimes in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus goes and prays, and then he makes some kind of decision after prayer. So one of those days, whatever day that may be, we don't know. 
Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. In Luke's gospel, that is setting something up for Jesus to make a crucial decision. Jesus prays before he makes that decision. It is a shining example to the rest of us of how we ought to go about making really crucial and important decisions in our own life. Pray about it before we make the decision. Listen to God. Try to understand what it is God would have us to do in the process. So look what happens. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Well, we know, of course, that he's already handpicked some of them. He's gone to them. Now he's bringing others to him. It's a new way of doing it compared to the way he's done it in the past. But he chooses the 12. Now look at this. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Luke lists for us the disciples. And if you will notice, Peter's name is always listed first in the Gospels when the disciples are listed. And Judas' name is always listed last. That's a given. What we also discover is that if you read the respective disciples, it is not always similar. There are different names for disciples. Now, how can that be? How can we have different names? For example, here we have uh, Judas, the son of James, and we have Judas Iscariot. So in Luke's gospel, there are actually two by the name of Judas. He is only found in Luke's gospel, however. We have Simon the Zealot, Simon of Cyrene. We have Thaddeus. We have Judas. We have the son of James. And they're not all listed in the other gospels. There are other names used. Why would that be? Scholars believe that maybe some of the disciples worked with Jesus for a certain period of time, and then they were replaced, if you will, or some of these disciples might have actually died, and they were replaced with other names. Whatever may be the case, there are different names for these disciples, but it is always 12 no matter what. It's kind of like ministry in the church. You have pastors on staff. You have other people on staff for a period of time, and then one person on staff might leave, move somewhere else, take another job. That individual is replaced. They're now in the same position, the new person is, as the previous person, but the previous person is no longer there. The ministry still continues. The work is still done. It's just done in the name of a new person who is on staff. It, it Probably, if you will, for lack of a better way of describing it, it is as if there is a new staff person working with Jesus, more than likely. It is always 12, and it is always men, but there are names that are not in all four Gospels that are the same. Nevertheless, they do the work they've been called to do. All right. So you have these people who are furious with what Jesus has done on the Sabbath, Jesus then goes off and prays, and he hand-selects his 12, his closest companions. He went down with them, verse 17, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. 
Those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So Jesus now is on a plane. That means that he is face to face on level footing with everybody else. And while he is among the people, Jesus goes about healing. So now Jesus is going to tell us who belongs to the kingdom of God. And I'll just tell you, it's the poor. Uh, he doesn't idealize poverty, but Jesus is going to emphasize his commitment to the poor and the downtrodden. So we're going to experience here four blesseds and four woes. This is Luke's very small, simple version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but we call it the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke because he is on level footing with them. He is not elevated up on the mount. So they're not just the same. For example, Matthew said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. So we have four blesseds from Luke. And the blessed ones are those who are marginalized, those who are looked down upon, those who are needy, those who are suffering in some way. They are blessed because everything they need, they will receive. Then we have the woes. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you who, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. What we have here is that Jesus is stressing that those who are suffering in this life will one day receive a blessing that will never cause them to be hungry or to weep again. When Jesus makes reference to those who are rich and those who are well-fed, he's talking about those who have an abundance but are unwilling to do anything with it to provide for those who are needy. Jesus says, in other words, if you have a lot and you don't share it with anybody else, as a result of that, you go without. Remember, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, John the Baptist it so often does, baptizes people as an act of repentance and then gives instruction. People ask, what are we to do? And John the Baptist says, somebody needs a coat, give them a coat. If somebody's hungry, give them something to eat. We see that over and over again in Luke's gospel. We see it here. The emphasis on making sure those who are without are provided for and those who have excess have a responsibility to provide for those who are without. All right, but, what, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. That is also found in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. 
Sounds real simple, doesn't it? That what that means is stress love beyond our capacity to realize whether or not we can do it on our own. Who wants to love our enemy and who wants to do good for those who hate us and bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us? One of the things we discover about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, which is a requirement and a mandate for all of us, is that we do that which others seem to believe is impossible. We have to find it within us to love those people that others hate and we hate and hate us. We have to find a way to pray for those who mistreat us. If thinking being a Christian, if you believe that, is easy and simple, then go back and read this again. The expectations are grandiose. They're huge. And the challenge for us is to recognize we can't do it on our own. We need to be able to do it by the power of God. The expectation is enormous for those who follow Jesus. You're not just like the world. You have to do things that other people would never do. Love your enemy. Pray for those who curse you. Wow. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is an extraordinarily difficult kind of thing. It takes a lifetime of effort in many ways to try to make this happen. The expectations are not that we are taken advantage of, but that we don't respond in kind. If someone strikes us on one cheek, we don't do the same thing back. That just simply creates more violence. Violence begets violence. What Jesus is doing is placing expectations on his followers that seem unattainable, which means, of course, we cannot do this by ourselves. We don't have the capacity to do it. We have to go the extra mile. We have to turn the other cheek. We have to love our enemy. And we have to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. A huge challenge for anyone. So then Jesus explains that, how to stretch love beyond our inner circle of friends by saying, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those to whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them. There it is again. It is that emphasis, saying it again, reminding us again to do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. An enormous expectation. We can't overlook this in the Gospel of Luke. We can't turn a blind eye to what the expectations are for us. Our responsibility and challenge is try to be better than we are, to try to live beyond the standards set by the world to the standards set by God for us, and to make every effort to move in that direction every single day. That is a huge challenge for anyone. But our job is to stretch our love beyond our inner circle of friends, to people who can't repay us, uh, to people who don't even like us, to be able to stretch love to such a degree that those kind of individuals might end up loving us in return. We're going to go just a little bit further. Chapter 6, verse 37. 
Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Simple enough. Given it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The standard for our relationship with others will be the standard God uses in relationship with us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Remember, but the measure that we use is the same measure that is used for us. Remember what we say, forgive us our, in the sermon on, excuse me, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What we are saying is, God, forgive us to the same degree we're willing to forgive other people. We're measured by the same standard. That's what Jesus is saying here. What we receive from God is what we should be giving away. Everything. God extends to us mercy, grace, love, and forgiveness. We ought to be doing it just as much as God is because we're judged by that standard. If we hold that from us, then the inference is it is held from us by God. Which ought to cause all of us to think long and hard about simply walking away from the expectation to live by a higher standard than just the world. Okay, we're going to stop right here at chapter 6, verse 38. We will pick up with verse 39 of chapter 6 next week. I appreciate you very much being a part of this study this evening. Uh, for those of you who watched during the course of the week, I certainly appreciate you doing that as well. We continue to work our way through the Gospel of Luke. It is extraordinary to think about this man named Jesus who places incredible expectations on himself in terms of how he handles people, but those same expectations are placed on us also in terms of how we relate to each other. Which means, of course, that we have to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ in order to have the capacity and the strength ourselves to do the kinds of things we are supposed to do that the rest of the world will not do but are expected of us if we follow the one who personifies love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness so well. We are to live with him as the example to emulate his life and the way he handles other people. Let us pray. God, how thankful we are for the chance we have to, tonight to study your word once again. Please give us the power and the strength and the wherewithal to be better than we are tomorrow than we have been today to be more faithful, to try to love those who don't care much for us, to try to forgive those we don't want to forgive, to try to go the extra mile and turn the other cheek. Help us, God. Give us strength to be who you would have us to be, to know that in the process of doing so, what a difference we could make in the name of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Blessings to you on the rest of your week. We hope to worship with you this Sunday morning.